start a briefing. Welcome to Gifts of Station episode 3. My name is Efren Torres and as usual I'm accompanied by Pilani Lamini. We are your Chiefs of Station. Today we have a very very special episode. We have two legends from the open source intelligence domain. We have Cynthia Hetherington from the Hetherington Group and Arno Reuser from Reuser Information Services. This podcast episode is going to be particularly interesting to those that have no knowledge at all on open source intelligence or to those of you that want to uh, maybe uh, learn a little bit more about the nature of open source intelligence. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation between these this, this two titans uh, 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 of this uh, intelligence domain. All right, so uh, Cynthia and Arno, thank you very much for taking the time today to speak with us about open source intelligence. And I want to begin this podcast first uh, to ask uh, us um, if you can give us an introduction of your uh, of, of who you are, right? The background, uh, your trajectory, uh, the type of audiences that you're currently teaching open source intelligence to, and uh, the challenges that involves teaching open source intelligence. Uh, so why don't we start with Cynthia and then we move to Arno after that. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast, to, to meet and speak with Arno, to, to get in front of your listeners. I greatly appreciate that. Um, gosh, where do I start? Uh, 25, almost 30 years ago, I was a public librarian uh, where I was Google before Google was Google and realized very early on as technology was truly growing as the World Wide Web had become a thing. As we were coming off of chat boards and BBSs and other technology that, you know, a few, a few of us were using at the time, I saw a future in information dissemination, storage, transmission, however you want to call it. Basically, we were stepping out of our libraries and stepping more into cyberspace. So I embraced it. I, I went with it. I went with the flow. I became the internet librarian. I became the virtual librarian. I still have a website, virtuallibrarian.com. I started uh, sharing how to do research and how to find information with anybody who would listen and anybody who's interested. The law enforcement military were the folks that really stepped up. So I, all of a sudden I found myself funneled into, you know, it was a coquettish, quiet little librarian in northern New Jersey, and all of a sudden I turned into this trainer in front of the United States Secret Service, the FBI, the DOD. I was always still terrified and over-impressed by these folks, but I keep coming in there and I keep telling them, this is how we find information on the internet. In the last 25 years, I created and am the founder of, of the Hetherington Group, which is a company that actually monetizes that. So as a librarian, we give it away for free, but in the industry, we charge dollars for it. The focus of my company is to provide expert intelligence and investigations support for cases, matters, whatever, whatever's troubling you. And our client focus there is the corporate sector. Although I still do training in the law enforcement military communities on a monthly basis, my clients, the people who pay for this end product are industry, manufacturing, pharma, all those you know, people who make money for a living. Yes, the great question at the end of it is the trajectory. So during the course of the last 10 years, I've also propped up an open source intelligence conference called Osmosis. And 
it's not only a, a place where I get to bring all my friends and family together to sit there and talk about open source intelligence or research or information finding using the internet. It's also my way of establishing a benchmark and a, a sense of authority, whether we get it right or wrong at the beginning. It, you know, I, I learned by making mistakes. That's not the primary. The primary goal is to start establishing a benchmark where open source intelligence is a product in a company or on a unit or a team or um, an agency that is recognized and that there are skill sets that employees are expected to have. So we see that in the next three years really growing in that way with certification, association, and continuing education. Oh, thank you, Cynthia. Arno, give us um, insight on who you are. <laughs> well, I'm on a... That's important. I used to study history at the University of Amsterdam back in the 80s of the previous century when I discovered the joy of an archive uh, being a place of unpublished information, information that you can only find in that single archive. You won't be able to find anywhere else. And when I did my first archive research about the murder on a grocery owner back in the uh, late 17th century in Compton, the Netherlands, I found that the personnel could retrieve any document I wanted, any document I needed, within a minute. It didn't matter what kind of document, it didn't matter how old, they could find it within a minute. And I was really hooked on how they did that. So I changed my career to go to the Library Academy to study the finer art of the global information landscape, how to find out about information. It's not that I want to study all that information. I don't want to get a degree in something. I just want to know where can I find answers to questions. Mm -hmm. And when I worked for the Technical Documentation and Information Center for the Armed Forces in the late 80s, I discovered the internet, which was unknown in the Netherlands. Only a few universities had access to the internet. Uh, and I, as a as an individual, had access or tried to get access because I had no idea how it worked. There was no books, there was no internet to look it up, and in the libraries they had no idea how it worked. So I had bought a CD-ROM, which is back then a large disk, which is by now completely outdated. I'll show you an example later, right? Uh, with Yggdrasil Linux on it, to, because I understood that Linux was the uh, foundation or the um, operating system to, to, to go if you want to go into the internet. And it took me two days to get that CD running because I had absolutely no idea how it worked. But I found out about it and I discovered the joy of getting access to full text information. I didn't have to go to a library to find the latest security resolutions of the Security Council. I could go via Gopher to the Gopher site of the Security Council and download these resolutions, full text, in a couple of minutes. I was hooked on the system because it would augment my information position that I already had because I had access to very large, very complex commercial information providers such as LexisNexis, Dialog, Factiva, back then Reuters, etc., etc. I knew how libraries work. I know how to get the treasures from a library. A library, in my humble opinion, is not a place where you borrow books. It is a place where you find answers to questions and lending books to people so the information is inaccessible anymore. It's for me a complete out of the question. So I combined what I knew, internet information, information from commercial information providers, and information I found in libraries 
to provide answers to questions instead of piles of paper, what Google today still does. Google and all the other search engines work according to a principle that is 40 years old. Give the people as much as you can and be proud about it. So in 1990 or something, I was invited by the Defense Intelligence and Security Service to establish their open source intelligence shop in Europe, which nobody knew what that was, uh, because I was one of the three who actually started to build one. And I didn't know what it was either. Um, so I traveled all over the world to learn at conferences, to learn from US Intel services, etc. What else is this what this is supposed to be? I developed it, it grew and grew and grew, got completely out of hand, I got personnel. Eventually, uh, other services, investigative services, asked me how to do it instead of the other way around. In 2008, I was invited so often by other services, investigative services, Intel services, universities, that some international missions asked me, Mr. Rosen, can we not pay for your services? No, you cannot. You do not hire a spy, which is what we call integrity. So I asked the Minister of Defense to establish my own uh, company next to my work for the service, which took the minister half a year to be completely satisfied that I could keep the two separated from each other and give them access to what I exactly I do. In 2008, I established my company. Uh, 2008 was also the last year I actually had a holiday. This is my holiday, working with great people like you. Uh, and in 2013, that got out of hand as well. And I decided to give up my well-paid job, to give up my pension, and uh, follow my dream, and that is to share my passion for open source intelligence, to, to learn the world, to tell the world, to share with the world how to do it, how to get access to the best possible information in the best time, in the best quality, so you can take decisions and hopefully leading to change. Now, I have this company and I teach and I read and I share. I program my own little tools, which is a great asset to learn how to program. Um, and I've even had the plan of uh, writing my own book. Uh, and that's a little bit about me. Now, obviously, I, I have I've had the chance to interact with uh, both of you. Obviously, with Cynthia, I haven't had a chance to interact in person, but I've actually had a chance to interact with Arno. I've been, I guess you can call me, I, I've been a consumer of your training, uh, both of you. So I, uh, both of you are well-versed into this topic of open source intelligence. So I want to dive into uh, open source intelligence perspectives from the US and the EU. I don't know if they differ. I don't know if they're the same. Uh, as, as experts, you may view it through the same lens. But um, I, I want to ask first, so what is your point of view on what is open source intelligence, right? Uh, what is your interpretation based on what you do and based on your region? Cynthia? I, um, and I, I loved hearing Arno's opening because two things really popped out when he was introducing. He started as an archivist. And actually, when I was going through library school myself, my trajectory was to be an archivist, but they didn't have an archive program. They had an internet program. So we're both the, we're both the folks that would end up in the stacks, as we call it, you know, looking up old documents from governments, uh, which is open source intelligence. Efren, really, um, in my opinion, open source intelligence is, a, is an acronym we like to throw around right now. But what it, because open source to me was always software. It was Linux. It was computers, you know, and data entry and the, and the first, um, you know, the web out of California when it first opened. Uh, excuse me, the well, the well.com. Those were open sources. 
what we now know as open source intelligence is accessible information. So that could come from the databases and the computers we use. Yes, you do need um, information, like maybe you need subscriptions, and, and Arno mentioned Dialog, Reuters, Factiva, and other databases that you might need to pay money. So you could go on that extreme where you need access to it, but you don't need specialized credentials. You do not need to be a police officer or a military agent to gain access to it. It's, it's sitting there, it's accessible, you might need to go through some hoops. And of course, anything at Google or the surface web is very obviously open source. But also open source intelligence for me is when we step away from the computer and we gather information that could be seen as intelligence or hearsay information, whether it's an overheard conversation, whether it's um, in the United States, we can pick up the trash off the curb and gather bank account numbers and, and certain identifiers out of that. I mean, that's still, it's, it's open, it's accessible, it's legally obtainable information that I can use and report on. It's pretty much, I'm probably gonna question my own definition later, but I'm really, well, feel, it's, it's over. It's over. Right, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the beauty about, um, there is no set definition on what is intelligence or what is open source intelligence, it's different perspectives. Uh, with that said, Arno, what, what is your point of view uh, regarding that? Open source intelligence, um, I developed a definition of the phrase OSINT over the years. I see OSINT as a collaborative, integrated methodology, especially methodology and a production process to meet customers' intelligence requirements by providing them with actionable intelligence based on information found in open sources through a process of synthesis, analysis, or whatever you call that, and meeting certain quality criteria, it's, um, like validated, reliable, timely, accurate, blah, 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 whatever quality criteria you have. In essence, OSINT is a process. It's a method of uh, making sure decision makers can make decisions and achieve some change in whatever it is. It can be military intelligence, it can be strategic security intelligence, it can be corporate, competitive. Um, almost everybody needs intelligence to take decisions. That's what OSINT is it's a process you don't gather intelligence you gather information to analyze and produce intelligence what cynthia produces as intelligence it gives to me for her is intelligence for me that's information unless until i have analyzed that and then it becomes hopefully intelligence again which is a very short process in this case because cynthia is an expert and i just know her information is reliable Open source information is the product of OSINT. Open source information is the information, which is all information, regardless format, regardless where it's coming from, that can be acquired without any restrictions, free or commercial, in a legal and ethical way. Because if you let professionals like Cynthia and me go around with enough budget, and you, you really let us search, I'm a trained librarian, I'm trained to solve information problems. I know where to get information, in libraries, in commercial databases, on the streets, taxi drivers, that's all open source information. I may be able to find information that I'm not supposed to find. Uh, information left behind by people who leak their passwords, like our Minister of Defense, who logged in a EU defense meeting, a highly secret meeting via Zoom, and was so proud that she did that, that she made a snap of her screen, her, her computer screen, and put that on Twitter, including the link, and the password and everything, okay? I don't consider that open source information because that information was never intended to be 
in the open domain anyway. Exactly. It should be very clear, um, legally obtainable, ethical information that you can find anywhere. It's, it's, internet has got not, not much to do with it. There is so much more information out there that's not on the internet, which is what, what one of my courses is about. It's also one of the first things I try to hammer in the service where I worked. That there is so much information that you can simply buy. You don't need signals intelligence to intercept just anything. You can first wonder, can I not simply buy the stuff and then analyze it? OSINT is not a tool. OSINT is not cyber. OSINT is not the internet. It has nothing to do with it. It's a methodology. It's about OSINT. And that's information that is not just worldwide web information. Because on the internet, we also have FTP, NNTP, Telnet, blah, 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 all the other services. And there's so much more information out there that is not on the internet, which is basically my little definition. I agree completely with with uh, Efren that there is so much uh, strange definitions out there. It's really almost funny to have a look there. I've connected a few. Right, and, and to those uh, listening to us, uh, Arno uh, actually wrote for the journal I used to manage, uh, and he wrote a very nice paper on the Reuser propeller cycle of open source intelligence, which details all the different moving parts he just mentioned within his definition of open source intelligence. So uh, to those interested, that's uh, under the Journal of European and American Intelligence Studies. I believe he was published in 2018. Um, moving on. Um, I want to know how do you approach each one of you uh, teaching open source intelligence in your respective regions or your respective companies? How, how do you teach? What is your emphasis? Cynthia, with you first. It's, it's, it's so refreshing to, to listen to Arno. And, I, and I, a lot of the questions we got kind of called up here are a reflection of that ideology that he has and how you have been a student of his. I see that now. Um, and it plays into this question, like how do we approach OSINT? Um, from my perspective, and, and I might change my perspective. It's made me really think about this as uh, OSINT more of the methodology, less the product. Uh, because I go before OSINT and I actually start with knowledge ecology, which is data is stuff out there wherever. It, it gets formed into collectives, which becomes information, which you're calling OSINF. And then that collection of information that we've gathered then gets pulled together into reasonable, analyzed or summarized conclusions, which is knowledge, which in this case, we might be calling intelligence. And I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. That's kind of just kind of blew my mind there. Now, and I'm writing, I'm rewriting my book for the second time. And I was on this chapter last night. So it's really ponderous. In that, in that they know it, we're still going in the same direction. We're just defining it differently at different points. And this is why OSINT needs to be defined and benchmarked. So in our world, uh, our engagements are by solicitation. So a client contacts us and lets us know what their ponderous issue is. And our first uh, evaluation of that work is what is the legal and ethical boundaries of our duty? What is our responsibility for gathering that information? And it's because we're held, you know, all intelligence gatherers are held towards legal confines, whether nationally or internationally or even locally. Once we've cleared that hurdle, it's then in the collection phase. You know, it's gathering all that data, it's pulling in all those sources. And, um, you know, I could send Arno into the archives or into a local public library and it'll take them 
less than three minutes to find on the stacks what I'm looking for to start gathering potential answers for that information. We do it now when the internet because there's so much accessible. And then we, uh, the interesting thing, we're, on, we're not trained formally as we were being trained as librarians, we were never trained analytics. We weren't trained analysis. Librarians are trained collectors. It's not our duty to do deep analysis. So the last 20 years of my experience has been taking all that information, pulling it together into a product and then making suggestions based on that. From the US perspective, we have to be very careful about how we, we push our hypothesis or push our conclusions in our reports because of the legality of it, of the responsibility and the witness of the information you find. And if, because all open source is secondary research, we're not primary researchers, we're not doing interviews with people. So we can only surmise what we think is the best conclusion. Even if it's staring at me in the face, I still have to be very careful, but that's you know, the end result. And that, that type of work product can take hours, days, or years to, to you know, it's all the same process though. Arno? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an analyst, but that doesn't mean that OSINT cannot deliver intelligence. Uh, I know some OSINT departments that really have analysts that do analysis based on open sources and produce intelligence reports. So that's the, that's the complete open source intelligence process. Um, the question as to how I approach OSIN teaching in my region, I'm not sure what the region is, if, if that's my country or Europe even. No, let's say from um, the European from the European uh, perspective. Yeah, well, in that case, uh, the diversity in how to do OSIN is so diverse and sometimes even secret for one reason or another, I'm not sure why, uh, that I cannot answer that, that I can only answer that for the countries where I've been, and then only I had a small impression, of course. I myself approach teaching uh, from a methodology uh, standpoint, where I put the customer in the middle. Uh, I must know uh, what exactly is the requirement analysis to continue with problem deconstruction, to know exactly what the customer wants, as you may recall from my um, new Ocean's propeller intelligence cycle, the customer is in the middle and all the rest evolves around it. If I know the requirement analysis, if I have that very, very clear, and you may take some time there, take some time, the better the requirement analysis is, the easier it is to produce a decent report. Then I want to know what open sources are there out there that may hold an answer to the question, uh, which means no internet. It simply means uh, that you need to know your sources. Source knowledge, knowledge about sources is endlessly more important than knowing about some freaky tools. And I can assure you that um, I, I think that any professional librarian at a university in the Netherlands uh, will outperform Google in giving correct answers that are actionable. Then I continue with knowing um, how to build a collection plan. What exactly are we going to do? If we know what the customer wants, if we know what the uh, information landscape looks like, we need to make a plan of what are we going to find, which answers are we looking for, and how can we collect all that information. Then we need to do something on search engines, on, on, uh, on information retrieval languages of the online databases. And we need to know how to find proper information in a proper library. And with a library, I also mean these very specialized documentation centers. We have in this city where I live in Leiden, a wonderful university, Africa Center, with a fantastic information position on Africa. In Amsterdam, uh, there's a faculty that studies Japanese. They have a fantastic information position on Japanese culture and language. 
I need to know these sources to find answers to questions. Endlessly more important than knowing all these free tools. <laughs> then I want to know, and that's the second most important step, uh, Boolean logic. And this may sound childish, um, but I find in my experience that if a requirement analysis was properly done, and if the sources analysis was properly done, and if people are, are capable of making a balanced representative selection of open sources that approaches an issue from all viewpoints, where you even try to um, uh, follow the positions of people that you don't like, like with uh, analysis of competing hypothesis, where you try to have a look at different viewpoints, even if you don't agree with all these viewpoints. If you've done that properly, I see in my experience that many people completely destroy the process by entering wrong queries, by F-U-C-K-ing everything up. Uh, and since uh, most people think that Google uh, has everything and Google will always give you an answer, I have no idea why. I can prove online how reliable Google is. Um, people only uh, find a fraction of the available information. Remember that the deep web is estimated to be 50 times larger than the surface web, according to Chris Sherman and Kenny Price. Up to 500 times larger, my dear friends, 500 times larger, which means that a search engine will only find two tenths of a percent of the world wide web. How many search engines are there? What is the overlap between the search engines? The overlap is estimated to be around 20%. And Google is just one of them. That's it. Google is in the overall global information landscape completely insignificant. You need to know many, many more information retrieval languages and sources. And that's why I pay so much uh, information, so much attention to um, uh, studying the finer art of building queries. After that, search strategies, building blocks, suggested fractions, presentation, build growing, since knows them all, to uh, make a very systematic search. Uh, continue with a, a strategy such as fractions to bring down millions and millions to a couple of hundred with increased relevance, and then citation will grow to get the pearls out. So this is the foundation of everything I do in, in ocean teaching, obviously adapted to the kind of customer. If it's a strategic customer, I will pay more attention to country information. If it's law enforcement, I'll pay more attention to investigative uh, strategies and finding people and finding groups, etc. etc. If it's uh, an insurance company, finance, banking, I'll pay more attention to frauds, et cetera, et cetera. But the system is always the same. The methodology is always the same. It's the methodology I just explained. That is basically the foundation of everything I do. Does this make right. any sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yep. Uh, actually, actually, it spurs a question that I want to fire right back to you because you know you've you've really opened up, you know, the whole practice of the open source intelligence tradecraft, which leads me to something which, as practitioners, we feel is quite controversial and a huge misunderstanding. But we don't want to monopolize viewpoints here and maybe ask you, what do you feel about um, and what are your thoughts regarding the use of the word OSINT as a verb? For example, uh, why don't you OSINT that? Uh, or another example is uh, the most, <laughs> the most, you know, I wish people could see what Anna's doing. <laughs> but uh, the most, one of the most recent uh, stark examples has been the news reports of OSINT sleuths, you know, um, many different uses of language, um, a lot of them which, from a practicing point of view, um, look like a mismatch. But what do you have to say on that, Arno? And then, immediately after <laughs> Cynthia. Yeah, I find that pathetic. Um, I really have the uh, impression, let's, let's 
try and stay a little bit polite here, although I'm Dutch, um, <laughs> that these people hear a sexy word, OSINT, and try to put it in anywhere to attract attention. Uh, all these, this use of the word OSINT, which what you may want to do, this is a nice little test. Take the sentence or the paragraph where the word OSINT was used, leave it out, the word OSINT, and see if it changes the message. If it doesn't, the word OSINT has no meaning at all. <laughs> all right, so using OSINT tools to find newspaper articles is the same as using tools to find newspaper articles. It's the same thing. But it's got nothing to do with OSINT at all. Um, and I really think it's just used by people who have never worked for the Intel service, who have never done any OSINT research or established their own, their own shop or have studied librarianship, that they simply use it um, to attract attention or something. I have many of these, these discussions here, many of these um, uh, paragraphs here that I uh, started to collect until I gave up because it's too much. Um, and it's up to completely ridiculous. Up to a point okay. where a company, and then I'll stop, I'll stop, where a company is producing fantastic software to monitor public media and uh, then all of a sudden announces a week-long OSINT course that they're going to give, an OSINT course. They're not giving OSINT course at all. They just want to have a program to sell their own software. They call that OSINT. That's it. Imagine traveling all through Europe, uh, attending there and finding out about this on the spot. My law. Anyway, does this answer your question, Phil? Yeah, yeah. So far, so good. I mean, you seem to say, share a similar viewpoint. Maybe Cynthia has something uh, different <laughs> in this perspective. I, I, I echo Arno's statement. I, I can't agree with him more. I, just the thought that we mentioned, um, uh, the, the only thing that, just like I said earlier, that kind of stuck in my head was that he, he can approach OSIN as more of a methodology um, that was where maybe the closest thing to a verb would, you know, come in because it's a thing you do. But, uh, you know, in the business sector, you know, we stamp things called OSINT because it's what the client expects. It's a marketing gimmick. I mean, when I started, I didn't teach OSINT. I taught online research and I still call much of my work online research. Uh, you know, how to find information. I, I teach library skills. Now I teach library schools and it's incorporation of the internet, but everything that I teach and everything that I project and everything that I sell is basically answering questions for people, you know, what was answering questions for patrons, which are now clients, and putting into a report with a methodology that enunciates the specific core questions they need to find. As Arnold mentioned, the, the, the buzz of OSIN is because it's sexy. And he's absolutely right. Any of the online training offered by the vendors is always for the purpose of selling more vendor product. And I participate, I'm part of, I'm very interested in the community. I don't believe in buttonology or software solves all things, but they can help, you know, refine or reduce or make efficient in some areas. Mm -hmm. So I'll follow along, but he's absolutely right. Where I see a company that, you know, has a a monitoring product, and, and they, they ask me all the time, would you talk on our webinars? Would you be part of our webcast? And I'm, yeah, sure, because what I'm going to do the whole time is say, this is what this product doesn't do. This is where this product is actually helpful. 
you know, we had the Dewey Decimal System in the library world in the U.S. to help us find books on the shelves. Was it the answer to questions? No, but it helped simplify our process. Yet, when we look at that in comparison to the open source world, we call it cataloging. We call it indexing and archiving. And again, what we borrow from our library world, when we built machine access ready catalogs or mark records back in the 1950s to put books on shelves. And then if I needed something from Amsterdam, the mark record would match something I have here in the United States. That was the first metadata, you know, the world, big data, you know, deep analysis, deep dark web. In my 25 years in this industry, you just keep coming up with new buzzwords to sell the same thing. You know, Arno and I, we find answers to questions. We have a methodology that seems to work and we teach that. But at the end of the day, we're really just two librarians who figured out how to, how to turn this into a very new and interesting industry we now call OSINT. Thank you. I, so I, I have noticed that there, there is a, a clear divide uh, when it comes to open source intelligence. Those that practice, I guess I want to call it traditional um, research, right? What people may call just open source intelligence as a collection discipline, right? Meaning using resources like libraries, newspapers, books, uh, media, etc. And then the other side that is more... Um, focus, right? The people are using these scrapers, these Linux-based uh, tools, and uh, all about automation and, and, and tools. So what do you have to say regarding this, the, the common confusion, right? If I say, if I mention open source intelligence, um, I'm very traditional, so I mean research, right? Good old school, uh, good old school, OSINT from the Cold War era and everything that encompasses, including our social media. And those that mean tools, only tools, Linux. What do you have to say about that miscommunication? I, I know a lot of people that I talk to and we end up discussing open source intelligence. They first think about the tools. And this is a, a, a big problem uh, that, that is creating a lot of, uh, the, it's blurring the real meaning of open source intelligence. So uh, let's start with you, Cynthia, since you were the last one speaking. Um. I agree, Efren, that we start to see that um, open source intelligence analysts, I, I see job listings now for open source intelligence analysts, and they want to know if they have experience with, in our military, it's called the toolkits, which is probably similar in other, in other countries, you know, are you familiar with this box of tools that we have? And I don't see that they're looking for critical thinkers, researchers, or even right. curious and courageous people who are, you know, will look deeper into a library stack. Um, I, I have recently divided this hire in my office because I do, and I see this in my, my staff. There are some analysts who can gather information. They're, they're real explorers on the internet. They're not afraid to go into a library and pull documents. They do analysis. They will look and review the material as much as they can and they produce a product. And I used to hire everyone, we call them intelligence analysts. And I used to hire everyone at that level. And then some of them really were failing because they couldn't understand how to conduct analysis. They were looking to push a button. They were being flooded. I mean, frankly, let's call tools out for what they are. It's to try to minimize the volume of data that we are getting. So, you know, there's a purpose. It's like computer forensics. In the beginning, I did computer forensics and I could do that on a 386 computer. 
I can't do that in today's cloud computing world. I need access data and Encase and other products to help me. So to, to see an analyst translate all the way to understand and respect the use of the tools, the use of the product and what their sources are, as Arno was really clear about establishing, know that you use the tools for the sake of making your sources more valuable to you, then they're great. The rest of them, if you're a button pusher, you're a collector. You sit there and you watch, you know, we use, we teach you Boolean logic. We teach you how to find keywords through a system. And you sit there and you are the human intelligence that ingests the data and then hands it to an intelligence analyst. And what we've done is, is the Echo Analytics or uh, Buddy Jericho's companies on social media out there, he's actually divided his training program in this way where he has an entire training system on strictly collections and data sourcing, understanding the the minutia of what we do to find data. And then he has an entire other structure of analytical methods and how to capture and create intelligence products from it. So there's a place for everybody, but I would say the button pushers are just the most junior of staff members. And once they get beyond understanding mm -hmm. that these tools have limitations, then they're ready to grow into analysts. Great, Arno? Many years ago, I uh, got a phone call from a researcher from a ammunition manufacturer, manufacturer in the Netherlands who wanted to drive one hour to my office to browse through the journals of Change Defense Weekly, a weekly journal, to look for a contract announcement summoned in the last three years, and then drive back an hour to his office, which will cost him all morning. So I made him a proposal. I said, if I can get you this contract announcement on your desk in five minutes, would you pay 300 guilders? And he would. And I, do, I used Dialog, then called Dialog databases, file 83, where I can search James Stevens weekly for the contract. Put it on a fax machine, got it with them. Bang, 300 builders. Today, people who call that an OSINT tool, it's bloody librarian. Oh, I'm sorry. It's librarian work, okay? It's about sources. It's simple. Okay, think sources. Many years later, when the uh, um, uh, Kuwait war broke out, the second, the second Gulf War, I believe, in the early 2000s, um, when I, I invaded um, um, uh, Kuwait, there was demand for maps of Kuwait City. Uh, we couldn't find any maps online because everybody thinks and assumes that the information is online, either online or it doesn't exist. But I think in sources, I'm an information freak. I'm, I'm a source horse. I think in sources first and the question. I think what exactly is it that the customer wants? What products could have the answer to that question. So I think, where can I get maps? Well, what kind of people need maps? What kind of people use maps? Well, people who go on a holiday, on a hiking holiday. So I go to the local outdoor shop where they have 10, one to 25 scale maps of Kuwait City. I bought them all, nine guilders each, bang. That's ocean, my dear friends. That's ocean, knowing your sources, knowing how to solve questions. It's got, today they would call this outdoor shop an ocean tool. All right, let's come down to do with it. Does this answer your question? Yes, I think they will call it osinting nowadays. Osinting, yeah, maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Uh, it could be that it's 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 online somewhere, but that, that chance is not very high. But the chances are much higher that it's between the ears of somebody who never recorded the information in a taxi driver, cleaning the ladies. Um, my neighbor, uh, I have a neighbor down the street here, three blocks down the down the street. Uh, who is uh, elderly and she gossips a lot. She knows everything about the streets, everything. She knows exactly who 
who's going shopping, who's going on a holiday, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Ideal, fantastic information position. None of it is available on the internet. Fair enough. Now, uh, obviously, we know about there, there are some open source intelligence initiatives uh, online on social media. And, and this is great for people who don't necessarily have the financial means to afford training courses on open source intelligence. Um, however, from my experience doing the, the apprenticeship under Ghost, and initially I was teaching some open source intelligence. And then as I also started teaching in, uh, at, at the university level in the United States, it became apparent that maybe some, if I teach somebody how to use certain tools uh, for the sake of hosting things, right? Uh, it may be a liability, right? I, I, for example, I wouldn't know what a student is going to do with those type of skills, right? He, he could use it for good, he could use it for bad. Uh, so that being said, uh, what do you think about these free social media initiatives, right? Do, uh, do they represent a security issue? I mean, you have plenty of free content uh, on how to get people's information from, from the web, how to, get, uh, how to get somebody's profile on Facebook, Uh, I mean, take it for a professional, this is extremely useful, especially when you're in, a, in an intelligence unit that doesn't necessarily can afford training for, for their analysts, but for somebody who's just looking to know how to stalk somebody, right? From that perspective, what are your thoughts um, about these different uh, free training initiatives? Cynthia? It's a, it's a very interesting question because you're talking about weaponizing information. And in the United States, there is no privacy. So mm -hmm. it's, I can easily look up your home address, who your children are. Uh, and this is a known, a known vulnerability, but it's our public record information is open source. It's a sellable record. And that's even in the, um, in the open market, not even in the oh, private, sorry, working from home. Oh, not even fine. in the private detective industry. Uh, where we even have more exceptional databases. That said, uh, one of the things that I think is it's important for everybody to understand research and source information because it helps them also become a better, not only better consumer, but a better advocate for themselves where they know that they might want to reduce their digital footprint by finding, locating, and removing information from the internet. You are always given an opportunity, but given given commerce a chance, they will always monetize your addresses, your personal data, mm -hmm. and other pieces. As far as social media is concerned, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon here. The fact that you decided, you, the end user, decided to join a platform which is considered free in price tag, yet you have authorized them to take anything and everything they want from there and either market and, and consume it or make it accessible to the general public, it really becomes the user's responsibility to understand what they're sharing and what they're not sharing. And Efren, in the last year, we have seen a, an incredible increase in the United States where teenagers or young people are putting um, questionable content in their social media profiles mm -hmm. and everything is being looked at with a tight microscope these days and they're being outed So if you use an offensive word and it's, you know, in context or out of context, I don't care. You just use an offensive word. Somebody takes that one image and starts promoting it on the internet, on Twitter or some other platform. Now you're going to spend thousands, thousands of dollars trying to mitigate that problem. 
So you really have to become a smarter consumer. I mean, this vehicle we call the internet is the most powerful tool that's at most average citizens' fingertips every day. And yet you treat it like it's the water that you could turn on and off by moving your tap. So uh, as far as professional use of it versus that, that's what designates in the United States uh, investigators with licensing, authorities, certification, and credentials in order to conduct this research and why it makes our product admissible in court versus the stalker who wants to find out what her ex-boyfriend is up to. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't see any security risk whatsoever. People put that information online themselves. Uh, it's their responsibility to do that. And they should take that responsibility. Furthermore, anything you put online can be used against you one way or the other. Um, I have here a quote on my screen that I use in my lessons by Cardinal Richelieu, um, early 17th century, who said, if you give me six lines written by the hand of the most honest of men, of men, I will find something in them that will hang him. Six lines of text. He will find something that they can use against you. And it, it applies to anything, anywhere. Uh, I can make small selections from social media by a person, uh, combine that with the wrong pictures, the wrong photograph, uh, take everything out of context and republish it and uh, I'll hang you. Not a problem. I, I confirm that information with some other fake accounts that I have. I can reconfirm that with yet other uh, uh, accounts that I can make, et cetera, et cetera. I once had a, a presentation for Eurojust here in The Hague. Uh, the director was present. He's not called director. President or something, um, and this was this was about at least 15 years ago, and I made live in front of the audience and in front of the director a fake Facebook account on his name with his data, his picture, and fake posts that would seriously damage him, and they all were laughing until I said, "Look, I'm, this is real. This is real, real life. This is real time. This finger is now about 10 centimeters above the enter button." Would you like me to press enter? It's not me. It's your shop. Your IP address, not mine. And then they stop laughing. Well, the real danger you know, is, in my humble opinion, the lack of education at primary and secondary school. There should be uh, something called information literacy program for all children. Um, let's throw out mathematics or physics or whatever and replace that with information literacy. It's a hell of a lot more important than learning about mathematics. Mathematics is great, little hobby of mine. It's not as important as information literacy. Uh, there's plenty of research on how children um, use internet and Google and social media, etc. cetera. Uh, children in the Netherlands, um, some of them really think that the information in the ads, in a search engine, is the best information because these ad makers have to pay to be there. So it must be good. <laughs> right. Isn't that fantastic? I absolutely agree with you. Well, nowadays, uh, information is the most valuable currency, whether on an individual or, 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 or about if anything. If people really. only understood that the information can be found by anybody all over the world for the next 10 years, so you wouldn't be able to, re to remove it, would you still publish that information? If people only realized or thought for just a few seconds, how can this information that I'm now going to publish use, be used against me? How can that damage me or my children? Mm -hmm. Why on earth would you make 
pictures of your star crazy naked children or one two years old and put, put that on the internet. These children are going to grow up. What do you think happens in these child pornography websites? Where do, where do you think they yeah. get their pictures from? Mm-hmm. How do you think these mothers respond when they find out their children are being used in a child pornography website? <laughs> okay, yeah, it happens. They, they, and they still do it, right? It's, we have been using social media for quite a while and people still don't understand. But that leads us to, to the next uh, section, Phil, right? The future of yeah. open source intelligence. Yeah, you know, um, which is pretty interesting as a little bit of a segue, because to build on something which I noticed, which is part of the reason why we convened this as US or EU perspectives on open source intelligence is because the way that Arno is articulating the fact that, uh, you know, he views that there should be some sort of education that should be happening for children is because the EU has arrived at the GDPR where they feel that they've done everything to limit uh, what companies can do with certain amounts of information. So I guess that it's a, it's a different playground and a different set of questions being asked at a different time in terms of education, where you reach the maximum of what you can tell a company to do or not to do. And then now it's actually uh, about time to warn and, warn and sort of educate the sort of end user that, you know, as you walk into this, now it's your responsibility which also brings something uh, of a futuristic question but actually it's also happening in the president uh, present sorry um that um what do you think that the uh the role of ai is so far in OSINT? like how is it transforming OSINT? and and with that specific role if there is any um how do you see OSINT developing in the next decade with within this context of artificial intelligence. Cynthia, would you well, be ready a, to? No, this is a, it's, it's, it's a big question, but I think it could come down to a couple fine points for me. Um, just the role of OSINT and the OSINT analyst that we see growing in the future. Uh, it's, it's nothing, but sky is the limit because we are just producing much more content. And I think the last statistic I read, which was by the Pew Research, or it might have been a Nielsen report, said that 80% of the world's data has been created in the last two years. Now, let's think of data in its true form. It's, it's a tweet. It's a photo. It's, it's not content. It's not Shakespeare. Yet, with that volume of data, we need machines to help us collate and create um, aggregated points of contact. I believe machine learning and artificial intelligence do have a place in the future for open source intelligence gathering. I see it as a tool in the hands of a human intelligence professional and not human in the military sense. I mean, the human as in the the Efrens, the Phils, the Arnos, the people who could sit there and ingest the volume of data based on their Boolean logic, based on their understanding of where the source data is coming in, and then put together good conclusions towards that research. AI is also really key in certain types of OSINT. You see, we never decided to talk about like, where does OSINT play in different industries? I mean, it's one thing to have a week to curate a report and create a, a great dossier on what's going on in a part of the world. It's another thing to be using it as an emergency emerg- emergency response system in risk or protective intelligence where I see, you know, my clients traveling into foreign countries where there might be an uprising or a protest. 
So in the right hands, artificial intelligence has incredible use. In the wrong hands, it's going to be sold to the highest, to the person who could pay these high price tags. And they're going to sit a bunch of analysts there who are buttonologists, who can sit there and push a button all day. They don't really comprehend the grandness of what they're doing. And they're just spitting back reports. And, and I've seen that work product in the field because frankly, a lot of my clients said, hey, company A just gave me this, what do you think? And I said, well, it looks like a vendor report. Mm -hmm. And yep. it's it's crap, frankly. It's It has no meaning. There is no qualitative review of that document. So um, it fails. But if I had that same tool in the hands of one of my analysts, I think we would we'd be more efficient and effective in, in delivering what I call in OSINT is um, it's not just drinking from the fire hose, that analogy we're taking data in as we're drinking from a fire hose. I see it as the ocean and I'm trying to find the same drop of water twice. So that's where AI comes in and helps. Arno? I quote from a national intelligence estimate 1951 to the president of the United States. Although it's impossible to determine which cause the Kremlin is likely to adopt, we believe that the extent of satellite military and propaganda preparations indicates that an attack on Yugoslavia in 1951 should be considered a serious possibility. Bye-bye artificial intelligence. If this is the way we uh, communicate messages or warnings, should be considered a serious possibility. What the f*** is that? Are they going to attack you or no? I have no idea. And neither did Sherman Kent, if I understand his literature uh, correctly. Which has got nothing to do with artificial intelligence. This has to do with another big issue, uh, grossly uh, underrated, which is presenting information to a customer, getting the message through to a customer, uh, making sure the customer uh, listens and hears what he's supposed to hear instead of what he wants to hear, which is what most people do. Uh, another thing that I don't see artificial intelligence do, and which is the prime, most important step in any ocean's uh, production process, is understanding the requirement of the customer. Uh, and I actually uh, am concerned that IT is drifting away from the end user, from the customer, more and more, step by step. Um, when, when a customer says, this software actually works, what a customer probably means is something like uh, productivity is increased or I can uh, delve through more information in, in shorter time or whatever. When an IT person says this works, what I mean is there's no more error messages, which is the same syntax and a completely different message. And my big concern is that IE will only contribute to this drifting away from IT, from uh, reality and from what a customer really wants. Okay, so, so uh, you know, yeah, go ahead. If no, no, please go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, um, part of the reason that asking that question is obviously because of the way that um, current analysts and want to be analysts are interacting with tools which are available and their understanding of open source intelligence. And this whole discussion has really been opening it from the standpoint from those of you whose journey and genesis into open source intelligence as a tradecraft has spanned many years from when it wasn't such a fancy thing and it was library sciences, something very complicated to what it's now having buzzwords like what Cynthia was saying. So with that, you know, I can't, um, I'm going to ask you as professionals for some advice to those who want to branch into the world of intelligence because of the way that you've had your specific journeys, but then also 
so that you can have the opportunity to sort of introduce some of the programs that you do offer because um, I think that they do market themselves as different kinds of starting points into into how one can branch into the world of intelligence. Arno, would you like to start? And then Cynthia will cap off for us. We don't miss you anyway, Rand, all of a sudden. Sorry, Cynthia. Uh, <laughs> I would... Not intentionally. Uh, yeah, I understand, I understand. Um, I would say two things. One, make sure you know what you're talking about. Know about the subject, that, that, uh, the subject of intelligence. So if you're in the, di- in the dairy industry, you need to know about dairy industry, about how that works, how that's done, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, secondly, you go to the library and you start talking to a librarian, somebody who is trained in that, that particular area of knowledge. And that should be a good starting point. So if you're in strategic intelligence, you study history or international relations or conflict studies. And then you go to a librarian, you have a private talk. And where do I find what? How do I find out about? Um, most of these academic studies have a booklet written by a couple of professors entitled, How do I find out about? And then there's numerous sources and sources and sources about how to find out about history, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that, if you're still interested, that will be an interesting starting point, I guess. Um, if I explain to you what a bibliography is, what a she is, what a Wolford is, what a Dewey Decimal classification is, and how you get access to information. And if you're not hooked after 30 minutes, I'm going to call a doctor for you. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. All right. Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. So, Cynthia? I'm so <laughs> crushing hard on Arno right now because he's just like me in another country. Um, Yes. You know, in fact, and how did I learn to be a librarian in library school was they gave us, they taught us an entire class. This is an encyclopedia. These are all the variants of encyclopedias. This is dictionary day. And like you learned about sources. You learned how to qualify and quantify source information. These are, these are histories. This is how you build lexicon. This is how you build Boolean. And I come into this world now and, you know, I'm here 25 years and I should stop acting like I just showed up with my butt in my hair and my sensible shoes on. But I'm still astounded at the fact that everyone thinks you take a couple computer classes and you become an OSIN intelligence analyst. No, you're getting lucky. You know what? There's such a propensity of data out there that you get it right every now and then. Mm-hmm. But if I were and, and by the way, I am creating a program. I'm, I've got a university position I just picked up. I'm taking over a military institution, which actually is backing us away from buttonology and going back to fundamental research. So what I've been doing, they finally figured out here. And then in another place where I'm offering the same training is with one of our major agencies, because they just, they got themselves caught up in this AI world and realized they forgot how to teach people how to find source information. If in my real world, I could actually take the time and merit to train up Phil, if I had you three years ago, I would have put you in a library with no internet. I would have given you some search queries and I would have told you, find the answers from the stacks, find the information from books, utilize the very specific databases that the library has brought in and approved of, and then answer my questions with that. And you would learn source development. You would learn how to qualify and quantify information as it's being presented to you. And you would develop a trust with the data that you are 
pulling in to use in your in your research. And then I'd say, oh, and by the way, now you could do this from home using the internet. Same methodology, same uh, earnestness of practice, and the same approach towards gathering. So, I you know, my kind of closer is take everybody's class that's available and learn from anybody, even if it seems like somebody became an OSINT expert because they have a heavy duty Twitter account and they're really good at developing software, you might look your nose down your nose at them, but there's gonna be a tip or two in there and I'll walk away with. Never be dismissive of something because it doesn't meet your methodology. But I would say that everyone should have a specific methodology for themselves that they're consistent and that it's reliable. I absolutely many, agree. many years ago, I um, many many years ago, I was at a reception at the Ministry of Defense, and um, a analyst came to me, and uh, internet was was fairly new in those days, and he came to me and he said, "Mr. Rosser, this Google of yours is absolutely fantastic," he said, <laughs> because I I was tasked to find all universities in a particular country, and it only took me half a day to find at least eleven, and I'm stunned, and I think, why do you come to me? I, I'm a librarian. I have behind me a book. It's called The World of Learning by Europa Publication. It lists all the universities in the world, all the learned institutes, all the laboratories. Your bloody countries on page 73. It would have taken you three minutes, man. <laughs> and I learned analysts do not have legs. And by the way, I love this expression, Cynthia, buttonology. I've written it down if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it really happens, uh, okay? It, it is very accurate. I got it. I got it. You know what? I had that moment. The, a police officer came into my public library and he had a school ring and the name of the school on it was Patterson. And he didn't know which Patterson it was. And it, there's many Pattersons in the United States. But this was part of the, I don't know, the collection of materials they got in a robbery. And he was trying to track down, you know, where the person who maybe owned the ring and where the victims were. And he's like, I know you have access to the internet now. This is the early 90s. Maybe you could find it there. And I said, wait a minute, a school? And I turned around and I reached for a book called The, um, the Guide to Educational Institutions. And I went to the P's and I found all the Pattersons. And I said, here you go. And I kid you not, that is exactly how I've been doing this job ever since. Know your source. Use whatever resource you have to get there the fastest. And um, don't forget to charge money for it when you're in the private sector, because this is worth something to somebody. Our efficiency mm -hmm. and our methodology is certainly worth something. And then always teach the guy behind you. Always create a path for someone else to learn. Absolutely. Is there time, time for one more anecdote? Yeah. What's that? Absolutely. Yeah. Go for is there it. Time for one more anecdote? Yeah, of course. Uh, combining uh, what Cynthia already said. Uh, and uh, obviously she's absolutely right. That's why she's a librarian. Um, <laughs> the rest um, of us are all beings. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's, um, it's the case uh, that was told to me by a police officer from The Hague, a road rage incident here near Leiden where a cyclist, one of these racing cyclists, I'm not sure about the English term there, um, had a fight with a car driver, a lady, a pregnant lady, and uh, they got into a real fight, and he threw her in the canal. Bicycle and all, uh, the bicycle and all, his own bicycle and the woman. His own bicycle, not his own bicycle, the woman, all right? Um, she then uh, managed to get out of the canal and help herself uh, to her car, and the police tried to find this cyclist. How did they do that? 
Well, the policeman sat back and he thought, what do cyclists do? They cycle very, very fast. And how do they behave? What is typical for them? Well, they have a little computer on their handlebars, don't they? Where, where you can see how fast you go and how many kilometers you've driven and um, et cetera, et cetera. And then he thought, what do real cyclists do? Well, these computers have access to an online database where you can keep track of your profile and share that with others. So you can have a little competition. Who's the best and who goes the fastest, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And he looked up in open sources somewhere, how many of these bicycle computers have actually have an online database where you can keep track of your scores, et cetera. Three, computers have access to such lists. Uh, one of these had a cyclist that was uh, roughly around that time in that neighborhood uh, cycling along that canal. Bang, gotcha. Simple. If you sit back and forget about Google and think sources, and in this case, think profiling of people. Okay, it's a lovely example where um, you think sources, think profiling, think uh, investigative services, and then think of the internet. In my list of preferred sources, I have a list of eight categories of sources. The first category is you, you yourself. I want to know what you have on your shelves, in your, in your desk. How have you indexed all your own information? Then come a lot of other types of sources. And number eight is internet. Last resort. Yes. Anyway. Uh, you know, I, uh, I can definitely relate to both of you. I, I also work at a library for a very long time. I uh, was the assistant to the librarian. And of course, I'm very, very familiar with the duodecimal system. And I love being, and that's really what inspired me to the path to being an intelligence analyst. I didn't know which, uh, which discipline I want to do within intelligence. And that really led me to decide I want to be an intelligence analyst, to be able to have all this information to synthesize it or analyze it, however you want to call it, uh, and you know, absorb knowledge and uh, make it actionable intelligence any of the day. But um, I, I want to, one, one last question. So how do people find you? Uh, I know that a lot of uh, members of the audience, uh, those that are not familiar with your work, um, they, they probably are going to be interested in uh, upcoming training courses. So how do they find you? So Cynthia, well, uh, how, how do our audience uh, will be able to find you? Well, the easy answer is go to the source. So go to Efren's LinkedIn profile, look through his friends, and then find the one in Cynthia. And then reach out to me on LinkedIn. But uh, my company website is heatheringtongroup.com. And our conference is called Osmosis. So that's osmosiscon.com. And that will be in October, both virtual and um, in San Diego. So, and and please, as a librarian, I'm here to answer questions. If anyone has any, it doesn't matter if you think it's a stupid question, email me. So more than happy to to do that. And Efren, thank you for the opportunity to to meet Arno in in person, in our virtual person, and to just, uh, just to fall in love with him right here on uh, on the screen. (laughs) It's like it's likewise, it's likewise. <laughs> so Arno, how do people find you aside from uh, you know LinkedIn? Where do where do um, they go to get information on your uh, your training courses? Oh, um, my little website, um, LinkedIn pages. Uh, they know my email address from conferences and speeches, from papers I write. Uh, they mail me via Instagram, via Facebook, uh, via all kinds of channels. Uh, even the most bizarre channels. Um, so that's not really much of a problem. Very nice. Hearsay, of course, people have been at my training programs. 
and uh, are very enthusiastic. It's not, uh, it's called open source Intel, but it's really about a method that you can use anywhere. It doesn't matter where, it doesn't matter about the subject. And it really is productive. It really leads to productive, actionable intelligence. And once they, once they see that, I, um, they start telling about it. And uh, that too is, is how people find me. Very nice. Uh, to the audience, uh, if you ever need uh, the training courses on open source intelligence, I cannot recommend uh, the Hetherington Group and uh, Royster Information Services. Uh, they have uh, absolute uh, the, the best uh, type of content that I've encountered. And I've, I've, I've searched a lot as an intelligence professional for uh, content on open source intelligence. And this, there are definitely people that understand information, which at the end of the day, it's, it's what really matters if you want to um, understand the tradecraft. So thank you both. It has been a pleasure having you and uh, talking about open source intelligence. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Cynthia, thank you very much for joining. A pleasure meeting you, finally. Uh, you as well. Uh, we're now two of maybe five librarians who've come into this industry. <laughs> wow. Phil, thank you very much for your time. We're taking over the world one silent step at a yeah, time. Yeah, we will, we will. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, Ephraim, thank you very much for the hospitality and all the work you've put in, in here to make this possible. It was a pleasure talking to you. A pleasure sharing ideas with you, Phil and Cynthia, and hopefully this will not be the last time. Absolutely not. Indeed. Indeed. Last but not least, thank you for tuning in today. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I really hope this uh, gave you some insights uh, on... Uh, open source intelligence, as uh, mentioned throughout the conversation, is not just about uh, pressing buttons or getting information. There is a lot more to that. Uh, it's been great. So again, thank you to the participants. Thank you, uh, Bill. And this is Efren Torres, your chief of station, talking to you from somewhere in Eastern Europe. Uh, we'll talk next time. End of briefing. <laughs>